This is Can I Laugh on Your Shoulder. Hey, welcome to Can I Laugh on Your Shoulder. I'm Molly Stillman, and this is a podcast where I get to sit down with a different guest each week and have raw, funny, often brutally honest conversations about the things that matter most faith, business, life, and everything in between, where we each learn how to be good stewards of the things we've been entrusted with, even our stories, and how we can use those things to serve others and leave our families, our friendships, and our communities a little better than we found them. I want to create a space where people are unafraid to be themselves and unafraid to ask the questions the rest of us are thinking. My goal is to make you laugh, cry, and laugh till you cry. My guest this week is Curtis Chang. Curtis is a theologian and consulting faculty member of Duke Divinity School and a senior fellow at Fuller Theological Seminary. He's written for the New York Times and Christianity Today. He appears on CNN, CBS, ABC, NBC, PBS, all the letters. (laughs) And he is also the co-host of Good Faith, a podcast that he hosted with columnist David French. He has done incredible ministry and speaking and writing, and his newest book is called The Anxiety Opportunity, How Worry is the Doorway to Your Best Self. Curtis knows what it's like to view anxiety as an obstacle to overcome. He knows how trying to get rid of anxiety through sheer faith or willpower usually leads to feelings of shame and frustration. And after losing his job due to debilitating anxiety, Curtis began the process of healing his heart. And so combining years of personal experience, spiritual practice, and theological study, Curtis discovered an alternative approach, one that sees anxiety as the path to our best selves in Jesus Christ. Today's conversation is for anyone who has at any time struggled with or suffered from anxiety. I'm telling you, this is a really power-packed conversation with a lot of tangible takeaways, things that I feel like when you finish listening to this episode today, you can implement these things. We talk about it all and we really don't skirt the surface on the topic of anxiety. Curtis has so much wisdom to share and I'm really excited for you to hear this conversation. So without further ado, on to my chat with Curtis Chang. It's a big day on the podcast, folks. I have the one and the only Curtis Chang on the show. Curtis, welcome. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. I told you before we were recording uh, that my husband is a big fan of your Good Faith podcast, and I've started listening to it and just love the work you do. Um, I will say, I'm just going to come right out that, you know, I saw in your bio that you have a connection to Duke um, and I am a Tar Heel fan. So I don't, I I think we can still (laughs) be friends in Christ, you know, just like there's no Jew nor Gentile nor Blue Devil or Tar Heel. You know, we are all one in Christ Jesus. Yeah, apparently that's, yeah, I'm a little new to the whole Tar Heel uh, Blue Devils rivalry there, but uh, I'm I'm sure we could find a way forward. I think we can. I think we can. Um, Well, I'm really excited about this. So let's dive right in and have you give us the Curtis 101. So tell us who you are what you do, and how you got to where you are today. Yeah. Well, I think the best way to understand me is I'm someone who has always stood at the intersection between the world of secular institutions and work and Christian faith. So uh, in the wearing the secular hat, I actually have founded and run my own consulting firm that serves secular nonprofits in the Bay Area. So very much I have one foot in that world, and but I, I'm a former senior pastor of an evangelical covenant church. Like three career iterations ago, like you said, I'm <laughs> on the consulting faculty at uh, at Duke Divinity School. I'm also a senior fellow at Fuller Theological Seminary. Oh, awesome! So I have a foot in both worlds, and that's really originated my sort of work in trying to bridge these two worlds, which uh, the Good Faith podcast that I started with David French is one way in which we're trying to integrate and uh, bridge the worlds of faith and the worlds of politics, cultures, um, what's happening in technology and society and so forth. So the Good Faith podcast really covers kind of that that meeting ground where faith and the wider world intersect. Yeah. And um, I've written the book called The Anxiety Opportunity because uh, this is a, an example of where I think we have in the wider world this pervasive and growing pandemic, and it is a pandemic, it's a mental health pandemic Mm -hmm. of anxiety, 
but that uh, it's one in which I think actually uh, the Christian faith has something really helpful to say, uh, as well as to be corrected of, because I think there's ways in which Christianity has something very deeply to offer the response to anxiety, but it isn't what can sometimes pass as, I think, a superficial Christian response to anxiety. And I wanted, I wrote the book because I felt like there was something that needed to be corrected uh, in the Christian response to anxiety. And then also uh, once corrected, I think could be offered as a gift to the wider world. That's awesome. I'm so excited about this book. And um, it just released in May. So congratulations, by the way. Um, And I've said this on a couple of my other episodes uh, recently, but my listeners know I'm actually also in the process of writing a book. And well, the, the manuscript's written. I'm now in the editing process. It comes out in March. And I will just say, like, as this being my first one, it is so much work (laughs) and it is so hard (laughs) and it puts you through the ringer. And so um, I just have this new additional respect for authors. And uh, so I just want to say congratulations um, for all the work that I know I'm certain went on behind the scenes. (laughs) Well, I, I think it's interesting. Uh, I just had a book launch party last night oh, in conjunction awesome. with my birthday party, and people were asking me, what is it like to write a book? And um, <laughs> I think the best way I could put it is, I said this on my podcast, kind of the one of the dumbest things you could say as a male is to compare anything you've done to giving birth. Like That's like one of the dumbest things you could say, <laughs> right? As somebody who's watched my wife actually give birth, I would never say that. I'm saying, if I were dumb and insensitive, I would say mm-hmm. it's like giving birth to something. Yeah. <laughs> it's the best, it's the closest I've come to, like something that just gestates within you for a long time. Yeah. And then you bring on the world and you're, you have the feelings of vulnerability. Yeah. Of, of, you know, is how is this going to do in the world? Is it going to be well received? And you want people to like it and admire it, <laughs> but you're not sure. And so you have all, I, I, as best as I can imagine, yeah. uh, what the, that experience of giving birth, it's probably the closest I can come to. Yes. I keep, <laughs> um, comparing it to, I, I think by the time I'll, it gets out there, I'll think the same thing, but I I've been saying, cause mine is a memoir. And so I am like, i I really feel like it's me going and stripping completely naked and standing in the middle of Times Square and going, hey, everyone, what do you think? Like, yes. <laughs> that's what I feel like. It's like it's so vulnerable. It is. And, when you know, when you're writing about things like for me, writing about anxiety, yeah. uh, you are getting at some of the deepest vulnerabilities we mm-hmm. have because anxiety really gets at some of the, our core fears that we carry around and, and, and core shame. Uh, yeah. And partly why I wrote the book and this gets to why what I think needed to be corrected in the Christian understanding of anxiety is that there's a tremendous amount of shame around anxiety. I experienced that firsthand uh, in my own experience mm-hmm. of anxiety. Like I write the book, not as somebody who is coming in and as a outside of the experience, I write from within the experience of somebody who lifelong has suffered from anxiety, but didn't always know it because precisely because at least in the Christian world I grew up in, there's a certain amount of shame that is associated with it because it is characterized falsely, I believe, as a flaw, as a sign of lack of faith, you know, in some some context, even as a sin. And so I think I was carrying that around with me, not just in my childhood, but really in my adulthood, which really actually contributed to my most catastrophic breakdown from anxiety, which was when I was a senior pastor of an evangelical covenant church in California. Uh, I took over the church at a very stressful period, replacing the founding pastor, and then the dot-com bust hit. And it just got to be really overwhelming. And I was actually suffering from anxiety, but I didn't recognize it as much. I wasn't able to name it because of this sort of narrative that it's a it's a sign of lack of faith and here i was the new senior pastor like how could i admit that uh, their new senior pastor now was lacking faith if right. i was if that's what it meant to admit that i was suffering from anxiety and so that led to a catastrophic breakdown mm-hmm. and and so i actually went through a two week period where i i did not sleep at all uh because of my anxiety and that was a devastating experience that ultimately uh you know led to de- led to some uh, meaningful period of depression which often can happen with deep chronic anxiety and uh it completely upended my life it ended my career as a pastor um and forced me on this whole new whole new career path 
And so I write as somebody who knows the painful reality of anxiety, that anxiety is experienced as a problem um, for sure. And I don't mean to minimize the problem at all. But I wrote the book because I believe that if we just understand anxiety solely as a problem, we're actually missing out on what is the true essence of, of anxiety, which is that it's one of the most profound opportunities for spiritual growth. And as somebody who had my life completely devastated by anxiety, I'm here to tell folks, no, this is really true. Anxiety actually is the most profound opportunity for spiritual growth we may have. Yeah. You put this so perfectly of just talking about how it is an opportunity. And I think it's really interesting the way that you approach this subject because, and I'm so glad you used the term uh, anxiety pandemic because it is. We have an anxiety pandemic. I mean, I think I've read a, just a fascinating statistic recently that like over 60% of young girls are suffering from some kind of anxiety. Um, and I think the number is even higher for boys, but it's not like the data is just not as clear. Um, but we just know that young people today are really just battling anxiety more than ever. And I will tell you that like being involved in my church and uh, my, you know, a large Bible study here in the area, you know, I'm connecting with other women and other people on a regular basis. And the number one issue topic that comes up over and over and over again is anxiety over and over again. And with that, it has spurred really interesting discussions. And um, I guess it was in April, I had a, a women's ministry kind of huddle where just some of the we we gather and we have a topic and we pray and, and read scripture together. And, and we did one on anxiety. And so we were just gathering on my front porch, it was maybe 15, 20 women. And we were talking about this, this topic. And it was really fascinating, because for the very first time I heard everyone's kind of perspective and, and experience with anxiety. And it was seemed that two that people fell into one of two camps. They either have anxiety, have really battled with anxiety, or they have never struggled with anxiety and they don't understand how it works. And I can say that I have definitely struggled with anxiety over the past. Um, it has been something that I have regularly had to battle with. And it is something that my husband has never experienced in his life and has no way to even empathize with it because he's never experienced it. So I say all that to ask in writing this book and working on this book, and I know that the the research and the time and the all of it that goes into it, did you experience something similar where you were talking with people and people were like, oh, yes, I've definitely battled with anxiety, or this is not something I can even remotely relate to? Well, I think we all exist somewhere along a spectrum, you know, so from one side and somebody who can't very consciously identify uh, any really meaningful experience of anxiety, like your husband or some of your friends to people who are in full-blown anxiety disorders. And so I think it's probably helpful to, care to first define our terms a bit. And to say that one, there's a difference between anxiety and anxiety disorder. And part of the problem is we've conflated the two of them, right? So anxiety is a natural human reaction that we have in our body and in our minds, but especially in our body, uh, as we mm. uh, fear some future loss. Yeah. That's what anxiety is. It's the fear of some future loss. You could boil it down to, you know, anxiety equals loss. And that's a normal human reaction. Uh, I actually believe all human beings experience anxiety at some points in their lives, yeah. it just may feel like that's so they manage it so well um, that it doesn't register very, very strongly. Right. Then there are those who on the far end have anxiety disorders. And an anxiety disorder is our is basically when our response to anxiety becomes dysfunctional and 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 unhealthy. Right. So and that's important to, to make the distinction that essentially anxiety disorder is the inability to actually tolerate and hold the normal experience right. of anxiety. And and this is and it's important to emphasize that because I think that is uh, takes away the shame around anxiety, the way in which we think it is a problem, like something wrong with us. And this is why in my book I spent a lot of time around the biblical understanding of anxiety, including what is surprising for a lot of folks that the gospels go out of their way to describe Jesus as experiencing anxiety. And so I think this is really important that Jesus in taking on our full dimensions of our humanity 
took on human anxiety, which I think should be a, a clear uh, like rebuttal to anybody who thinks that this is a a sin or a right. flaw. Uh, but it's just it's what humans experience when they're yeah. facing loss. And it's why Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he was facing his most profound loss, you know, the the loss of all losses, really, uh, the gospels go out of their way to describe Jesus as suffering all of the classic symptoms of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I love when when people really are able to pull that out of the scripture and help people to understand that this is not you know, when Jesus came and and took on flesh and human form, like he felt all of the feelings and he experienced all the human emotions and anger and frustration and sadness and grief and anxiety. And I love that the Bible doesn't stray away from that. I want to unpack a little bit what you said about how anxiety equals loss. And it's this, um, you know, pointing to this inevitable loss or, or you, and you say that actually in the book, you kind of talk about how Every feeling of anxiety ultimately is pointing to this outcome that is in the future and in some ways is ultimately inevitable, which almost is like, wait, how's that helpful? (laughs) So what does that mean? Yeah, no, this is, uh, I think, something that I'm inviting readers to, to really enter into because so anxiety equals loss. It is the fear of some future loss, future loss that we have now. There can be an immediate reaction we have that is helpful as a response, which is that because anxiety is taking us to the future, right? That's what anxiety does. It's a, it's a, I describe it as a hijacker. It's hijacking us to some future where there's some loss that uh, we are afraid of. When anxiety gets to unmanageable levels, when it becomes dysfunctional, when it's starting to veer into the anxiety disorder, it can be very helpful for us to actually get present, to not get hijacked into the future and really return to the present because that's when anxiety loses its grip over us. So I spend a lot of part of the first parts of the book helping people uh, understand how do you get present and helping especially Christians see that a lot of the the sort of methods that secular mental health teaches us about getting present really actually are found in the scriptures. So that yeah. to, to help Christians, you know, understand things like mindful breathing, getting present, getting into creation, into nature, getting doing physical embodied activities. These are all ways in which we get into the present so that we're not getting hijacked into this future of loss. However, once we can sort of not get hijacked into anxiety's version of a future, which is filled with all these sort of scary losses, right? Uh, the, op- the deeper opportunity uh, in, in the anxiety opportunity is for us to get clear on how then do we relate actually healthily and and in a way that is centered on Jesus with the future and with loss. Because there is a great irony in play with anxiety, which is anxiety can actually take us into sort of all sorts of imaginary losses and losses that actually aren't, maybe aren't as imminent as we think they are, or aren't uh, going to take the form that we're afraid that they're going to form. But actually, the, the you're pointing to the great irony that actually, though, we do face loss. I mean, anything that we are afraid of that are, that's triggering some anxiety, ultimately, we actually will lose in our lives mm. uh, at some point, right? So if, uh, for your listeners, whatever right. you're, you're anxious about, let's say you're a parent and you're anxious about your kids and how they will do and that, you know, how they'll relate to you or how right. they Well, at some point, the fundamental fear that you have that you'll lose something in your relationship with your kids, you will lose because at some point you will die or they will die. Or you'll both die. And so that's kind of the, the the tricky thing about anxiety is it's taking us to an imaginary loss in one level of that it's it can happen right away or tomorrow or next week. But ultimately, anxiety is pointing us to some loss that will happen inevitably. So it invites us to ask the question, wait a minute, how do I hold loss, the the prospect and actually inevitability of loss? And that's really where some of the most profound spiritual growth can happen is when we realize anxiety is inviting us to clarify what is actually God promising us about the future and about loss in the future. Well, one of the things that I know that you talk about that I would really love, I think is the perfect kind of 
segue from what you were just sharing is, and, and this is something that I never would have made the connection to before. And that's the connection between the resurrection of Christ and anxiety. And I just think it's such a unique perspective on this and, and is something that I know that you've really taken in such a way to give people hope and begin to help people meet Jesus in our anxiety and that there really is an opportunity, especially for people who maybe don't know the Lord or maybe they're feeling like, because I'm anxious, do I not have enough faith or things like that? Like how does the connection of anxiety and Christ create a unique spiritual opportunity for people? Yeah. So again, this goes back to what is anxiety? Anxiety equals loss. It is the fear of some future loss. And so this is why we can't treat anxiety as a problem that we're trying to make go away. Right. Because if anxiety equals loss, then for you to say, I need anxiety to go away, you're essentially saying, I need loss mm. to go away. I need to have be protected from any possibility of loss, because that's really the only thing that's going to actually make anxiety go away completely. And many Christians fall into this trap. Uh, Non-Christians fall in this trap, but Christians fall into this trap because they mistakenly think that Christianity is some cosmic loss avoidance scheme. Yeah. That's, yes. Right? That that somehow you know, if I do the right thing or believe the right thing, read the right scriptures, then God will protect me from any of my losses that I fear. Which is like just and, another form of the prosperity gospel. Exactly. Right. So, but in, you know, we may have like more subtle or less you know obvious ways, but we, I think all of us are prone to thinking, yeah. no, God's there to try to you know, to to actually uh, ensure that I don't experience loss and. Any of us who has lived with any degree of self-awareness as a Christian will recognize, wait a minute, that actually is not true. Yep. Like we actually do experience loss. And if we cling on to this notion, this false notion, this unbiblical notion that God is supposed to protect us from all loss, we're in for a lot of problems mm. because one, God will, we will experience God as someone who's let us down because mm-hmm. we will we have experienced loss or we will furiously engage in all sorts of methods to to try to keep this loss avoidance scheme going in some way and this is actually actually leads to greater anxiety so the other part of the formula is anxiety equals loss times avoidance mm-hmm. like avoidance is the multiplier effect the more we engage in avoidance of law of of anxiety and loss the greater our anxiety actually rises. And that's because we're trying to avoid the unavoidable. So when we try to do something that is impossible to do, but we keep doing it, we're like the, you know, on the hamster wheel. We're trying to do something that's impossible. And so, you know, the mental version of a hamster wheel, for me anyways, is rumination. So rumination is a mental hamster wheel where we're turning over and over, running around Mm -hmm. and around over a scenario in our mind. And we're doing that because we're desperately searching for some scenario where loss is is avoided. Right? Yeah. That's that's why we're thinking about something over and over. We're thinking with just one more turn of our mind, with one more turn of this, this situation or that conversation, I, I will come up with the one thing I can say or do or think about that actually avoids some painful loss we yeah. want. But because that final turn never comes, we because loss is fundamentally unavoidable in life, we're all going to face loss because we're all mortal and we're right. all going to lose something. Right, exactly. We're all going to lose anything we love in our life. We're going to lose. That method is leads us to greater anxiety. Anxiety goes loss times avoidance. So this gets to what you're, you brought up. What then is the truly Christian response to loss if it isn't avoidance? And this is where resurrection is so crucial, that the real promise of the gospel is not loss, some loss avoidance scheme. It's actually loss restoration. Mm. And that's what the resurrection is. But loss restoration is very different from loss avoidance. Loss restoration actually requires that you go through loss. Mm. You go through loss first. It's the doorway. You have to go through the doorway. And on the other side is resurrection, right? Resurrection is actually, you, you have to die in order to get resurrection. Yeah. It's not, it's not, you'll never lose. It's not, you'll ever, never, never, never die. And so re-anchoring the Christian hope of the future in the resurrection is saying, oh, I actually have to go through loss. Mm-hmm. I have to actually be able to hold loss in the promise of future restoration in the end, when Jesus returns to restore all things, 
in the final resurrection. But it's not an avoidance. This is not. It's you can't get away away, away from it or around it. So that's that. That's if there's a central spiritual theological truth I'm trying to bring into the anxiety conversation. It's trying to say, as Christians anyways, we have something unique to bring to the conversation, which is the promise for those who believe in it and those who want to put their hope in it, in the promise of the resurrection. And that has profound implications for how we deal with anxiety. It means we have to be able to go through anxiety, not away, not around, because we have to be able to go through loss. Yeah. How has this been something that you yourself have walked out? Like, what has this looked like for you? Yeah. Well, I'll give a very practical, uh, it's gone out in in a number of different ways, but just to give one practical example, you raised in the early on the statistic about just how many uh, teens, especially teen girls are suffering from anxiety. I have two teen girls, daughters, and they're older than teens now, but when I was writing the book, they were teens. And, uh, you know, one of the things that temptations that parents of anxious kids have is we want to engage in our own form of avoidance Mm. because actually their anxiety is making us anxious. Any parent who has an anxious child is at some level going to experience some anxiety, especially, you know, at the levels of some of these that that we're seeing. I mean, the statistics you quoted, by the way, is from the CDC in 2021. They also quoted that same study, if 60% of teen girls suffering from, you know, significant levels of anxiety, 30%. 30%. It's over a third have contemplated suicide mm. as a result of that mental distress. That's we've never had figures that high before. No. So you know behind every single one of those those that those girls is a parent or parents who themselves are feeling anxious. So the the anxiety of our kids triggers our own anxiety. And so yeah. for me I know, and this is, you know, for, from, for me, one of the ways that I engage in avoidance is I want, I want to slide into what I call, what my kids now call consultant dad, uh, because I'm a consultant, I'm brought in to solve problems. And, and so I want to jump in there and solve all of their problems. And they actually find it really difficult to deal with consultant dad. Consultant dad does not actually help help them. Consultant them actually makes them more anxious. And the reason is because I'm not actually making room for their loss, mm-hmm. what they're experiencing. I'm just trying to make it go away. And also, I think they deep down sense that there's different energy going on other than just purely my care for them. That actually, what partly what's going on, I mean, it is I am caring for them, but partly what's going on is I am trying to make my own loss go away. Because when they are anxious, I am anxious. And I want to avoid that feeling. So I want to jump in there with all of this consultant fix-it engineering energy to like make their problems go away. And they don't like it. They mm. It makes them feel more anxious. And so what I've tried to do is actually try to actually just hold that loss, hold their loss, hold my loss that's going on in this uh, sort of scenario of anxiety they're going through. And it's I'm slightly, I'm learning to practice more what you know I call grieving dad. Yeah. So rather than the dad that goes in there to just try to solve all their problems, the dad that's going in there to actually share the experience and to empathize in some way with their loss or their fear of loss. And they actually welcome that dad a lot more and they find that dad a lot more helpful. Um, and that's my way of practicing. And this is a long way to answer your question. Uh, that's my way of actually connecting resurrection to the practice of parenting. Because again, just like the resurrection invites us to actually go through loss, not to avoid it. So to resurrection parenting, if you will, is to say, okay, I have to actually go through this experience of loss and anxiety with my kids and with myself together, actually experience it, grieve it, feel it. And that's what grieving is. It's it's actually rather than pushing the emotion away, it's it's just holding it, it's feeling it. Um, and in the belief that on the other side is a restoration, e- either, you know, near-term restoration or ultimately a long-term, the long-term ultimate restoration from the resurrection. Um, but that's a very different way of going through it than, than consultant dad. Yeah. I will be honest, that's really, that's convicting for me um, as, you know, this is, I have young kids who are nine and seven, my daughter's almost 10. And, you know, a lot of times I, you know, when we have conversations, I try to be mindful about if they have big feelings, because I have some kids that have some big feelings 
to be mindful. And this is something that, and maybe here we are, Curtis, welcome to our therapy session. Um, <laughs> counseling. <laughs> um, but the thing that I often find myself struggling with, and this is a true moment of vulnerability, is because I do feel like I sometimes do a really good job of letting my kids like feel the feeling mm-hmm. and, you know, let's let's talk through the feeling. Why are you feeling what you're feeling? Things like that. While then also not trying to be dismissive when they're feeling big feelings about something that they really should not feel big feelings about. You know what I'm saying? So it's like this balance of I don't want to just like cater to every big feeling. And then I want to validate the big feelings that are legitimate. (laughs) So this is a struggle I have and I know I'm not the only one. So what is your like, what are your thoughts on that? And how do you navigate that tension? Yeah. Well, I know I think there's actually validity to helping our kids and helping ourselves reframe the scale at which we are feeling things that our problems may have because that's what anxiety does. It it actually inflates the, you know, kind of the loss right. uh in, in our minds sometimes. And so sometimes it's helpful to, you know, do some classic cognitive behavioral work and try to actually say, hey, actually the loss is this size, you know, it's yeah, not this yeah, size. Yeah. Um and you're feeling okay that it's this, but in reality it's this. So I don't think there's anything wrong with what you're doing. I think it's actually really healthy. I think what I'm talking about is more the situation where we don't make room for the feeling. Uh, uh, at all. And we're jumping so quickly to just solve the problem in a hurry to make that feeling go away. So, but uh, yeah, no, I I think that's a, I think you're doing good work there. It sounds (laughs) like from what you're describing. All right. Thanks. Cause I, sometimes I'm like, oh, you know, like my kid will come in and say something like, oh, you know, this happened on the bus today. And I'm just like, is this actually something we need to like spend our emotional energy worrying about? (laughs) Or is this, you know, and then there'll be times where it's like, okay, this is a really valid thing to feel big feelings about. Um, And so then I, but then I go into the parenting guilt and then it just causes anxiety that I'm like, I've ruined my children. They're going to be in therapy forever because of me. (laughs) Well, you know, and actually I write about this in the book is that one of the most important reasons why I am doing this work to try to to make anxiety not a problem to not just be mm-hmm. a problem to not just be a spiritual problem or a sign of lack of faith or something is because actually one of the most important aspects of opportunity uh, the ones important opportunities anxiety has is that it's actually an opportunity for acceptance mm-hmm. uh, because so much shame uh is surrounding anxiety it's a signal to us, wait a minute, there's some acceptance work that needs to be happening. There's some part of ourselves, if we were talking about our own anxiety, there's some part of ourselves that we are trying to avoid, we're trying to get away from. And so anxiety is like, again, it's a sign, it's a doorway that's inviting. There's some part of yourself that perhaps could use the work of acceptance, self-acceptance that ultimately is grounded in the acceptance that we find in God through Jesus, right? Like that we're brought into this deep acceptance with our heavenly father that includes our anxieties, includes our anxious selves, includes our dark sides of ourselves that can feel weak or feel vulnerable. And so self-acceptance is so crucial for anybody. I think it's actually especially crucial for parents because we are primary, our most important intervention we will have with our anxious kids. The one thing we can deliver that no therapist, no drug, anything else can deliver is deep, deep, unconditional acceptance yeah. of them in their anxious selves, in their anxieties, that they can experience what it's like to be accepted as anxious uh, mm. kids, as anxious people. And that's actually profoundly healing because yeah. again, it, it removes the avoidance. It, it helps us actually hold our anxieties because we we can accept it. We can accept it ourselves that we're anxious and we because we've been accepted by someone else uh, in our anxious selves. And so p- the call of parents in this particular moment in of our society where we have this pandemic of anxiety, the the, the invitation for the parent is to be the parent who can accept your anxious child, your anxious Mm. teen. Now, here's the trick. That is an opportunity for the parent to go through spiritual growth him or herself. Because your kid's anxiety, if you have have some hatred, self-hatred, self-shame about your own anxiety, 
that's going to leak out when you parent an anxious child. That that anxious child is going to trigger, it's going to be like a mirror to you mm. of your own inner anxiety. This is just basic parenting, right? What our kids sort of mirror and trigger to us things that we <laughs> yes. experience internally in ourselves, yeah. right? So if, if we can't accept our own anxiety, we're going to have a really hard time accepting our kids anxiety and so this is why it's an opportunity for spiritual growth for ourselves to do the work of accepting uh, letting god accept uh our our anxious selves so that we can mirror the primary acceptance from god we can mirror that onto our kids mm, that is so good man and that is that'll preach that'll preach right there All right, I want to transition a little bit and talk about one other area of this that I am really particularly fascinated about and I know is one of your areas of kind of expertise, and that is the intersection of anxiety and politics. And I will say this right now, we do not talk about politics on this show really ever, um, and I do that intentionally, but I think that this conversation is really important because it is so pervasive right now. And um, you, I know, I know this about you, but I know you didn't mention it in the 101 is your work with Redeeming Babel. And so my question is two part. One, can you tell us a little bit about your, your work with Redeeming Babel, but how there is this intersection it, between or with anxiety and politics, especially yeah. today? Yeah. So my work with Redeeming Babbles is the organization that I, I run to uh, basically be the place that produces and distributes content on a host of topics. So the Good Faith podcast that we talked about, it's a production of Redeeming Babel. We produce courses on it. And our three main topics are anxiety, uh, organizational life, and politics. So let's just talk about two of the, the three. You know, why are we talking about anxiety and politics? Why are those two of our three big topics? Well, it's because you can't really understand and and respond to what's happening in politics if you don't understand the emotional <laughs> dimension of it. I mean, mm -hmm. we can talk up here in our head about all these issues and what's the right issue? What's the right way to think about this or the right policy? The Which party should we vote for? But underneath all politics today, and probably at all times, regardless of which left, right, Republican, Democrat, uh, really is pervasive anxiety. You, mm -hmm. you know, and anybody who's paying attention to politics will recognize that both parties, left and right, Democrat and Republican, are are actually, you know, appealing to and also further triggering our anxieties because they're promoting themselves as look. We're the thing that will stave off your loss. The loss that you fear, we're it, whether you're on the right or the left. If it's, you know, you're a Republican, maybe it's the fear of some cultural issue. If it's a Democrat, you're afraid of climate change or whatever. Whatever feared loss you have, uh, the politics is ratcheting up that fear, that that fear is really you know, getting intensified. And then the political party steps in and saying, look, the only way that you're going to stave off that feared loss is by voting for us, mm -hmm. by supporting us, by giving money to us. And so politics is pervasive with with um, with anxiety. So because Redeeming Babel is, it, we're doing this project called The After Party, which is with David French and Russell Moore, where we're trying to heal the political toxicity. Uh, we're realizing that politics is a toxic drug right now. Right. Uh, broadly in society. And it's a drug that is a, a, a poor drug or anxiety. <laughs> yeah. So that, right. It's, it's, uh, you know, whoever you want to name Trump, Biden, whatever, like it's, they're like Xanax for anxiety, especially yes. I think, you know, Christian anxiety, uh, in many circles. And so if we wanted to, um, wean Christians away from an addiction to politics as a drug for their anxiety, you have to give them the real thing. You have mm -hmm. to give them something better. You can't take away a drug from somebody and just say, just say no, just stop and not <laughs> give them something else to deal with the underlying anxiety. And that's a big reason why I wrote the book, even though the book is it really has very little to do with, with politics per se. I mean, I do mention a few references here and there, but it's it's not written with politics at all in mind. I did write the book because we have to get to the real thing. We have to get to the Jesus answer to anxiety, which is very different than the political sort of faux answer. Yeah. 
I'm curious to, if in your perspective, and I know that this is part of, you know, this is your work, you, you kind of marinate in this for a lot of, of the time. Is this something, because I think about, you know, you know, my dad was, my dad, actually, the day we're recording, this is my dad's birthday. My dad's turned 70. Well, happy birthday there, dad. I know. My dad turned uh-huh. 79 today. He'll be real mad that I said his age, but he's fine. <laughs> he, he likes to say that only 11 more years and he'll be 90. Um, but, you know, he was born the day before D-Day. And so I always think a lot about the political world and the world that like my dad was born into. Yeah. Like what a time to be alive, <laughs> you know, that he, when the Holocaust was happening when my father yeah. was born, which is just yeah. sometimes hard for me to wrap my mind around. Yeah. And so you look at the the world that we were living in at that time and, and the, you know, when my grandfather who was serving in World War II when my dad was born, you know, he was in France when wow. my dad was born, you know, he came back and my dad said, you know, he's like, my dad never talked about the war. Like it yeah. just, that generation did not talk about it when they got home from World War II. And then you, yeah. you know, you think about, you go into the fifties and the sixties and the seventies and just the political landscape changed so much, you know, and, but then you, you look at, I love watching clips of presidential debates from the seventies and eighties, like just what a different, you know, discourse we had and the ability yeah. to disagree peacefully and not that things didn't get heated from time to time, but there wasn't as much like vitriol and things like that. I'm curious your perspective in like, has that political solution to anxiety always been underlying? Has it gotten worse with time? Is it just a horse by a different, it, what's the phrase? A horse by a different color? Horse by a different Something name? Like Something yeah, like that. like yeah. that. You know what I'm saying? I'm probably totally, yeah. is that an idiom? Yeah, I'm totally like bumbling that's this. okay we, we're tracking we're tracking yeah. um you know is it just is it just something different um yeah. is it you know the inclusion of social media and all those things and like it's like yes and yes and yes but i'm curious your perspective on how that has shifted over time i do think that uh you know politics at some level all along uh has been a way in which different parties mobilize anxieties for their end. So I think that's there's a, some underlying truth to that. But I think the magnitude of that has increased. And there's a lots of reasons for that. Um, you know, just to name some t- uh, off the top of my head. One, I think the big sort has uh, been a big factor of that. The fact that we are demographically sorting ourselves mm. into more and more homogenous mm. uh, populations. There's just and that uh, sociologists will, will, you know, this is a proven sort of sociological reality that when you get together with like-minded people, uh, your biases actually go higher and your anxieties actually go higher because mm. you're circulating sort of the same way of looking at things and you actually multiply each other's fears that's uh, more and more. Uh, and so that's at a big structural level. One causal factor for why we're more polarized, more divided is because we're just, we're not, we're, we're more homogenous. We're not as intermixed. And, um, uh, you know, social media, I think has been obviously another accelerant in which, uh, again, we then, uh, not only are we living with the same people who think the same things, but the media that we're taking is all engineered to both reinforce our biases and also actually to increase our anxieties because, you know, th- that's how, click rates work is yeah. by we're clicking on something that makes us worried or right. we fear we're going to lose something. And um, so therefore we have to buy this thing or vote for this person or support this thing. So yeah, there's a lot of structural um, reasons for why I think our politics and our society are more anxious. But I think it's important to recognize that, you know, what can we control? Mm-hmm. Um, so when people ask us or ask me like, you know, why is anxiety so high? I use this analogy where there's two ways you can answer this question, which is, and I use the analogy of Katrina, like the hurricane Katrina yeah. that hit New Orleans, right? So why was Katrina a disaster? Well, you can do a complex analysis of the system level factors of the Gulf Stream, the rising temperatures, climate change, uh, wind streams that all conspire together to produce a perfect storm, a category five storm. And that's helpful to understand that just like, and I would say, you know, understanding the big sword and social media and technology and 
this and that are these sort of system level explanations for why I think there's more anxiety. Uh, there's a, this anxiety storm that has hit us. But then there's the practical question around Katrina that you ask, well, why did the levees break? Like, why did the structures we set up mm. to withstand storms, why was it unable to withstand them? And then in the case of Katrina, we discovered, well, it's because the construction of the levees was fundamentally flawed. And mm -hmm. it, it wasn't revealed for a long time. It it could withstand low-level storms, but it was fundamentally flawed in its construction such that a large storm would overwhelm it. That's really what I'm trying to set, talk about anxiety is you can talk about all sorts of the system level causes of anxiety, but fundamentally this anxiety storm is revealing that our levees are flawed, our mental, spiritual levees, the things, the ways we have constructed anxiety or responses to anxiety are flawed and, and central to that flaw is that we have treated it solely as a problem to make go away, to avoid. And, and until we correct that fundamental flaw, uh, we won't be able to respond truly in a sort of stable, robust way to all the variety of storms, that, of anxiety storms that are going to hit us. Because ultimately, I think the construction has to be built on that anxiety actually is an opportunity for us for growth. Yeah, man, this is such a good perspective. And I love that analogy. Uh, and I, I love that you said it when you were like, let's think about Katrina. And, I was, and you're like the hurricane. And I was like, I mean, I just loved the idea of being like, so Katrina, she was this chick, she lived down the road. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, but this really is such a good and and I think uh, I've had a lot of conversations um, with with friends. And um, I have a, one of my my best friends, Sharon Hottie Miller, she came out with a book last year called The Cost of Control. And mm -hmm. it's all about uh, and the subtitle I'm probably going to totally botch, but it was something like the anxiety it gives or why we crave it, the anxiety it gives and the real freedom God promises. And mm -hmm. she talked a lot about how when we feel anxious, you know, we seek out these areas of control, but then we'll that we are not actually, God didn't give us these areas to control. Right. And yeah. in turn, we then just feel more anxious. And she talked a lot about how the pandemic was even further a, re a revealer of that. And, she, you know, how yeah. early on in the pandemic, you know, she would sit and watch the news just for hours and hours and hours, like the next piece of information was going to be the thing that was going to help her, you know, right. feel more in control or how she, you know, will obsessively check the weather um, as though she has control over whether it's going to rain right. during her son's birthday party or not, you know, That's and, right. she, but yeah. the more you check, you can definitely will the rain away or whatever. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and, but when you have those, systems in place, like our own, you know, whatever you want to say is your own personal levy that just is flawed by design. When the storm comes, when the loss comes, it's going to break apart because you don't have anything that's that's holding it firmly in place. Yeah. I And again, the, the formula I use is anxiety equals loss times avoidance. Right. So the, all that control is really, it's a form of avoidance. Yeah. But, you know, if I can get this one piece of data, then I will avoid the yeah. possibility of loss. And we find that actually, you know, quite often, the more we get, the more data we get, actually, all it does is actually just, it's a multiplier effect. It just multiplies our fear of loss that much more. Yeah. And our anxiety goes up that much more. So the invitation, the opportunity here is rather than trying to avoid loss, how can we actually strengthen our capacity to hold loss, to endure loss, to go through it? Um, and that's, I think, when we start our building on a much more firm foundation. Mm. All right. Well, kind of the last overarching question that I wanted to ask is, I think, really is going to be the the button that I think a lot of people listening that especially, again, you know, this is a battle for them. And obviously, they should pick up your book, The Anxiety Opportunity. <laughs> um, but what you know, again, as somebody who I love how open you are about this is something that you have, you know, battled with, you've you've wrestled with, you've experienced yourself and and writing from that place is is not only healing for you, but healing for others when you know, when you when you hear when somebody has gone through something. Um, but what is a piece of practical, tangible advice you can give to someone listening who 
is like, yeah, that's me. I struggle with anxiety. I, I'm battling this regularly. And, you know, they just, they need that one thing that again, kind of maybe is that little bit of control, but maybe it's actually lessening control is the thing that to begin to take those steps. Cause it's a, it's a process by no means. And, and, and we will never arrive this side of heaven to lessen that worry. Well, I, I think maybe one way is to get curious, maybe. I mean, I'm trying to think of one thing that I can uh, end on here. And uh, I would just invite people to get curious about their anxiety. Um, so rather than treating it as, oh my gosh, I'm anxious, there must be something wrong with me. I must mm. make this feeling go away. I must get, either get more data or take a take a prescription. And, and you know, again, let me be clear also, just as a caveat here, I think there's a there's certainly a place for therapy. I've done many hours of therapy. There's a place for medication. I've done, I've taken anti-anxiety medication. But uh, what those those modalities uh, can really short circuit, they, what they can avoid is actually, again, the growth, the mm -hmm. wisdom that anxiety actually has for you. If you engage in those uh, things simply to make anxiety go away versus as a way to just bring it under a little more manageable control so that it's not something so frightening and scary, but rather something that you can actually get curious about. Because that's my long word is that anxiety has a lot to, to, to tell you. Anxiety has a lot to reveal to you if you're willing to be curious about it. And, you know, that I invite people to, to read my book if they want to walk further down that road. But I think it starts with curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. And it goes back to what we were saying before, too, is just not avoiding it. And yeah. uh, and and I think by not avoiding it, you get curious and you start to dig into why am I feeling this way? What is the underlying emotion or the underlying thing that, uh, you know, like you said, it's that inevitable loss that we, we might be anticipating. Um, Curtis, this has been so great. Uh, so you're just, you have so much wisdom and, um, oh, thank, thank you, you so much for sharing. And again, for your vulnerability and for giving, um, you know, metaphorical birth to this book, uh, <laughs> <laughs> not actual birth, nothing close. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but thank you so much for being here and, um, yeah. how can people best connect with you? And if they really want to just continue to support your work and, and engage, what's the best way they oh. can do Thank that. you. Thank you. Well, certainly encourage folks to buy the book, uh, Anxiety Opportunity by Curtis Chang. Uh, we invite folks to want to listen to how we make sense of the world through things like uh, the anxiety or politics or culture. Uh, certainly check out the Good Faith podcast, uh, wherever you stream your podcast. That's Good Faith podcast with Curtis Chang. And then if you're really interested in all other content, like our courses, you can go to redeemingbabble.org, uh, redeemingbabble.org for our courses on anxiety, uh, organizational life. And we're going to have one on politics coming out in the next few months. Awesome. Thank you so much, Curtis. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, I'm just so grateful for you. All right, Molly. Thanks so much for having me. I told you that Curtis is just a wealth of knowledge. I really hope that you loved this conversation with Curtis. I really hope that this was, especially for those of you who might, you know, struggle with anxiety. I hope that this conversation was encouraging and empowering for you. I would love to know what you loved about this episode. Please let us know on social media. You can find me at still being Molly or at can I laugh pod. And would you head on over to whatever podcast platform you're listening to and click the subscribe or follow button so that you never miss a new episode of the show. Thank you as always for listening. Thank you for your support. Thank you to the team at third wheel media for producing the show. And for you, I hope something this week makes you laugh till you cry. We'll see you next week. Bye.